The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. What a sweet truth that you are a strong Savior. That you have acted to make a people for yourself, us. Bless your holy name. What a delight it would be to just sing and to sing and to sing and to, and to hear all the people of God sing with full-throated joy. You have saved us. Thank you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit for the wisdom and the power of God poured out on us, the people who were against you but have been made your friends, who were far away but have been brought near. Bless your name for that. And Lord, you have done more than just to save us. You are continuing in relationship with us to to grow us, to sanctify us, to make us more like yourself, more like we were made to be, to bear your image more accurately. So towards that end, Lord, I pray that you would engage with us now in this time here over your word to change us, to grow us as we visit things that probably in large part are familiar to us, but change us, Lord, drive them into us and plant them down deeply and water the seed and cause it to grow and bear fruit in our lives, our lives. Lord, we look to you to build your church. And so I ask you, Father, to send your spirit now into our midst. To send him to to speak with each one of us sitting here, even now. Commission him to speak to us, to to clear away sin out of our hearts. if, If there's unconfessed sin that prohibits us from having full communion with you. To clear away distraction if there are Things like cell phones that need to be turned off or things like plans that need to be set aside. Worries from the outside world that need to be put off. Spirit of God, speak to your people. If there are fears or inhibitions, remove them, Lord, that the Word of God may run. That it may run and change us. Have your way with us, your people, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. The glory of Jesus for the good of us, His people. I pray this in Christ's good and holy and righteous and loving name. Amen. There's sometimes I just I just love to sing the worship songs that we have before us, and I, this morning was one of those times. So thank, thanks to you all who did that. It was a blessing to me. Last week we finished our study of the book of First Corinthians, which means now we're moving to something different—a short series in the book of Revelation. We're doing that on the way to a longer series in the Old Testament, where we're going to end up later this spring. Is 
a few weeks in the book of Judges to set us up for the books of First and Second Samuel, which is which are two different books in our Bible, but originally they were given by God as one book, Samuel, so we're going to work through both of them. That's where we're going. But today, and for the next little while, we'll be looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3. My custom over the years has been to insert a short series from the Psalms in between larger book studies. But as we talked it over on the elder board, we decided that this time it would perhaps be a little more useful for us to look at the first three chapters of Revelation, which contains, if you're familiar with it at all, letters or prophecies to seven different churches scattered throughout the province of Asia, modern Turkey. They're prophetic warnings to those seven churches. And as we look at them, it's going to provide for us opportunity to think about what Jesus says to the church. Because as we look at all of them together, and, and you'll note that all seven of these little letters were all seven of them sent to all the churches, so everybody read about everybody. Like we're going to do, we're going to read about everybody. And we'll see there Jesus saying to particular churches, he'll commend them for strengths and he'll... He'll point out weaknesses, and he'll chastise them for sin, and that all of that put together gives us a pretty decent picture of church. Of what is a church? What's a church to be? So we're going to read about that, and we're going to learn, which means that I'm not going to spend much time at all in the bulk of the book of Revelation. Now, there will be different strands that start in the early chapters and reach into the latter chapters. Maybe I'll make a comment here and there. But in large part, I'm going to try to focus in on chapters 1 to 3 and leave a whole bunch of stuff aside. I'll try to focus here so that we as a church can learn about being a church. That's where we're going. Let me begin by reading Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 for this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation chapter 1. 
And this opening section introduces the book of Revelation to us, and in so doing, it prepares the careful reader, and I emphasize careful because more than any book in the Bible, this one's been read uncarefully very often, more than any other book. So it introduces to us, to the careful reader, what we are to expect from what follows. First of all, verse 1 says, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation that Christ is giving. It's Christ's revelation to us given to him by God the Father, and then through an angelic witness given to John to give to the churches. So there's a chain there of revelation coming to the church, to the people of God. It's the word of God from Christ to us. It's revelation, and the word there is apocalypse, which perhaps you've heard. And so we are prepared by this introduction to receive a work of apocalyptic nature. Now, these days, today, a work of apocalyptic nature, a book or a movie of some sort, involves some combination of aliens, asteroids, nuclear holocaust, or pandemic plague. Some combination, maybe all of those things. And the point, in any of the movies coming out this year because of the Mayan prediction, the point is all human beings are together suffering as and until everything gets wiped out, the end. That's how it all goes. However, back in this day, back in the several centuries, kind of around the period when this apocalypse was written, right around the very end of 90, give or take, 90 AD, give or take five years, right at the very end of the first century, if you put a, a couple hundred year span over that period, there were numerous works of apocalypse written. And then it wasn't all of humanity joined against the unstoppable asteroid. We're all in this together. Then it was always some subset of humanity against all of the rest of humanity. And all of the rest of humanity is is bearing down on and crushing and persecuting and destroying the small subset And out of that small subset comes a work of apocalypse that says, not we're all in this together, we're all going to get destroyed, but we are in this together against them, and take heart, our God is coming. And he's going to fix it all. Or, maybe, after we get destroyed, our God will come and put the shoe on the other foot and fix it all. But the point is, Little group of people looking out at a world against them, being called by their work of apocalypse to trust in their God, whoever it may be, depending on who the writer is, and hope in Him and hold fast to Him, even as things look very bleak. That's the context for our work of apocalypse, and that's what we are receiving. A small subset, the church, looking out at a world uh, united by the Roman Empire against it and bearing down on it and crushing it. And out of that comes a revelation. Take heart, your God will come and save. That's what we are expected to receive by the fact that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. It's a prophecy also, as it says in verse 3, and it's a letter, as verse 4 indicates. It's, it's a standard introduction to a letter. John, the writer to the seven churches who he's writing to, 
And that tells us something also. However we interpret the book of Revelation, we have to realize it was a letter written to people who got it and didn't say, what? What in the world is that about? They understood it. They got it. So however we interpret and understand Revelation, it's got to be able to land in the first century and make sense to first century readers. An important control for how we read the whole rest of the book. This is a letter written by John to the seven churches, and here we meet the first introduction of the number seven. Perfect, full, whole, complete number. There were far more than seven churches in Asia, in modern Turkey at the time, far more. But he's picked out seven to, in a sense, say, to the fullness of the church, to the complete church. Let me say something. So we read this and we understand a message to us pointing us to a future time when our God will come and save, even though right now we are hard-pressed. That's what we should expect. And that's the message even that rises up from our passage today. Hang on, be faithful, and wait for our coming God. It's introduced to us even today. If I could put it in a sentence, here's my main point for this morning. Main point I'm going to work towards. The sovereignty of our saving God calls for our trust of Him and our obedience to Him. The sovereignty of our saving God calls for our trust of Him and our obedience to Him. I'm going to take that statement and break it into three different parts here. Make three different observations. And here's the first one. About the being of God and the place He occupies in relationship to all of his, his creation, all of his creatures. Here's my first observation. Simply, the Lord God Almighty reigns. The Lord God Almighty reigns in utter sovereign authority. The repeated point of this introduction cannot be missed. And really, as I said, it's, it's one of the main threads that runs through the whole book. Some have said it is the main point of the book of Revelation. God is the one in charge. And I think that as I say that, for, for most of us, there's something, maybe not full, Fully, but there's something a little bit that rises up in us that, that kind of says, duh, you know, well, of course. God's, God's in charge. God's, of course, yes. Well, hold on. Stop for a second and think about this. Why would God go through all the trouble of delivering a message to Jesus through an angelic messenger to John, to the churches, to say something along the lines of, duh, this is totally obvious, but I'm going to go through a whole lot of trouble to tell you anyway. Why? Why bother? He's writing to churches. Don't they know this? Don't we know this? Okay. This is an obvious point. It's fundamental to life properly lived. And... It is tragically, consistently, inadvertently, almost automatically overlooked as soon as we human beings start living life. 
Ask any single one of us. Is God in charge? Does God reign? Absolutely. Let me walk out of my door and start living. It's gone. Gone. It runs away. You don't even realize it. It it got up off of the page and ran out of the, the, the the, the cupboards of your mind. It's not there anymore. A simple example, and one that's very close to the main point of this book. A simple example. Do you ever, ever worry or fret about anything? I rest my case. Right? Because if you're a Christian, the fact that, which you well know, the fact that the Lord God Almighty reigns, if you're a Christian, now if you're not a Christian, that fact should cause very much worry because you haven't yet reconciled to Him. And I plead with you, reconcile to Him. And then you can be in this camp with us who are Christians, and the fact that the Lord God Almighty reigns means I don't have anything to worry about. Nothing. Get As soon as I get up and walk out the door, anxiety piles onto me. And you. Sometimes it's, it's terror and it's fear, and other times it's just a mild, hard-to-detect worry. And a whole lot of what we do in our days, a whole lot of why we go to work and work hard, if we trace it back, because we're worried about what will happen if we don't. A whole lot of why we interact kindly with other people and, and seemingly bless them is because we're worried about what it would be like if, if we offended them. Worry is everywhere in your life. Everywhere. Everywhere in your life. Which means you have forgotten that the Lord God Almighty reigns. And so God, your Father, says, tell them this. I am the Lord God Almighty, and I reign. I am absolutely, utterly, completely in charge. Yeah, the creation is in rebellion. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians. But be sure of this. God reigns over every rebel there are not two great powers in the universe duking it out, and God may hopefully one day triumph. He reigns, Psalm 2, sitting on his throne, laughing at those in rebellion. You've got to be kidding me. He is so in charge. Look at how this section displays this for us. In verse 4 and in verse 8, at the beginning and at the end, bookending the main heart of this passage, we have the eternality of God depicted. That is, the eternal nature of God. His being. He is the one and the only one who is and who was and who is to come. It says that twice in 4 and in 8. Now, perhaps some of your translations have verse 8 in red ink. It shouldn't be. Later in the book, Jesus will say the same thing. But here it is clearly from the context, God the Father, because verse 4 and 5 have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the Father who's saying this. He is the Lord God. That's a name for the Father in verse 8. God the Father is speaking. He is, was, and is to come. In, in some little sense, in, in little sense, that could be true of every one of us. I am, I was yesterday, and the odds are pretty good that I will be this afternoon. 
That's what that to come part means. It's not about the coming of verse 7. It's about being. And in a sense, I, I am, I was, I will be, so will you, but, but not like this. This expression has been true of God ever since it was written 2,000 years ago. And it was true of him a couple thousand years before that when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush and said, Who am I? I am the I am. I am the one who is. And that phrase, the I am, becomes in your Bible, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters, Lord, it's his name. All throughout the Old Testament, the one who is. And it's alluded to twice here in our verse 8. I am, verse begins, I am. That's the Greek way of saying the same thing. And the Lord God, that's the New Testament way of, of using that, of saying that Lord. Twice it points to that here in our text. God said to Moses 4,000 years ago, I am, I am the one who always am. Doesn't make any sense in English. I am. And go back as far as you want, Moses. Go back to the very, very start of all this before there was any created matter at all. And at the first moment of something coming into existence, I am. Because I have always been. Wherever you go, he was. And today he is. And wherever this goes in the future, he will be there. The unchanging, never created, never growing, never developing, supremely God one. Very different. Very different than some common perceptions of God that we have in our culture around us. Of a God who becomes of a God who starts as one thing and then becomes more. Never. He always is. And he says this in another way too, which expands on the point. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Verse 8. Touched on a couple of other times throughout the book. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Many of you probably know that. And what he's saying there is the same thing, but a little bit differently. He's saying, I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last, which clarifies for us that God is not just always present, but he is the defining frame. He is the, the boundary, the control of the whole situation. Perhaps picture it like a great big sheet. You shake out a sheet and it stretches out and falls. The sheet here falls on everything and the sheet is God. Over. Draped down around every edge. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Everything is contained within Him. He is God. In verse 4, this Alpha and Omega, this God who always is, is seated on a throne. An extremely common image in this book, communicating an inescapable point. Who sits on thrones? Kings. He sits on the throne, 
as king to rule. The Lord God Almighty, the omnipotent one who has all might and all authority and all existence for all of time without beginning and without end, who includes in himself all things, this is God. And it is almost too much for us to make any sense of it. Because we're trying to describe, I'm using human words, I'm speaking out of a human mind to human minds, and we are talking about the infinite. Think about, what does it mean to have existed before there was anything? You can't imagine that. Try. What is it like where there is nothing? It's not outer space, that's something. You can't get there with your mind. We can't get to God. We attempt to describe Him. We have some images given us in, in, in letters on pages. It far surpasses our ability to come to grips with this guy. We only can touch on the fringe of the shadow. Any one of these descriptions could be explored at great depth and never come close to it all. Perhaps it's best then to just be simple and say, He is all of these things, but to boil it down to a word, He is the boss. The boss. Well, perhaps the very last word of the whole section serves it, serves him best. The Almighty. The one with all might. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not the God of our imaginations, but the God of the prophets is God. Which means nothing and nobody else is. Not you, not me, not Caesar, not any other king or president or governor or governing body. God is God. And, and that should sit on us with, with a great deal of weight. But let it not strike you as, as morose or, or something that's kind of heavy-handed because it should also strike you, as, as well as being sobering, it should also strike you as sweet. We have a problem with, with words like authority and reign in our world because we've never seen it uncorrupted. Total authority in our world is always joined to evil. And if it isn't at the moment, it'll get there. And so we revel in checks and balances to try to control it. And where there isn't any of that in God, we get a little uncomfortable. But it should strike you as a sweet thing. There is no, no thug nature in God, no domineering nature in God, no mean-spirited, prideful, arrogant like, like human being power is. We should instead think of it as, as the sweetest of all doctrines, as an ancient theologian, ancient, well, old theologian described it, as the sweetest of all doctrines because it tells us the one who is in charge. And then as we read of his other attributes, we say, what a good and sweet and gracious and kind one it is to be in charge. Amen. Amen. 
It is a beautiful thing that the Lord God Almighty reigns. Which you know, right? But as Eugene Peterson wrote, to paraphrase him, Eugene Peterson, describing his job as a pastor, said, My job is to say God where everybody has forgotten him. And it is a full-time job. I'm in your shoes too. I'm a pastor, but I'm in your shoes. People need to say it to me also. But what I'm saying right now is God where you have forgotten him. God. God is laying this out here at the beginning, not, not to, to kind of poke at us and to convict us of our sin of forgetting him, but to remind you and to encourage you of something. This is written to churches to help them, because when you live forgetting him, What piles in on you is a world of trouble and you only have the resources in your hands to deal with it and they are inadequate. And fear and failure will come and then more sin will come and more fear and failure will come. And so he's trying to to bless you, church, to bless you by saying, God, remember me. I am the Almighty One and I reign I am enthroned. I hold the whole world, Christian, you and your life included, right here in my hands. He has you. And nothing, nothing is stronger than Him. Wiser than Him. More clever or tricky than Him. He has you. In his hands. And what is he doing? Holding us. And that takes us to the second observation. The Lord God Almighty, not just reigns, but reaches down to rescue and redeem in Jesus Christ. The Lord God Almighty reaches down to rescue. It's on the initiative of God the Father, but He does it in the person of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This book is extremely Trinitarian. We see it right here in 4 and 5. It's all throughout the book. Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father has willed to save, and He executes it in the Son, Jesus Christ. There is a marvelous juxtaposition in this passage, a marvelous putting together of two things side by side that seem odd. The Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is enthroned in the heavenlies and reigns, verse 4, says to you, grace and peace. And if you don't understand why that's a marvelous juxtaposition, you don't understand. God 
to you, church, grace and peace. It's amazing on two fronts, given the fact that we by nature are rebels against him, grace and peace out of his mouth to us rather than wrath and destruction. That's amazing. How can he do that? Well, we'll see a little bit of that in a minute. It's amazing on that front, but, it, but it's also remarkable in that this one would bother to speak to such a one as you and me. We would find it remarkable, wouldn't we? We'd find it remarkable if the phone rang in your house and you picked it up and it was President Obama. Or anybody even running for president. Even Ron Paul. If Ron Paul calls you, you'd be amazed. If you like Ron Paul, sorry about that, but he's not going to win. So, But even if he called you, even if he called you, you'd be, wow! That you even know my phone number is remarkable. That, you, that you're actually calling it and having a conversation with me and then that you're actually kind to me? Remarkable. Well, this is, this is not the president. This is not a call from the Oval Office. This is a word from the throne. It's from the one who is seated on the throne. He says to his son, Son, pass this on to the angelic messenger to John to my people. I want to say something to them. Grace and peace. That's remarkable. And more, look at verse 5. Christ, the risen one, the ruler of kings on earth. You hear the, the omnipotence in the Son also. The Father and the Son are one. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. And the text is about to bestow on him glory and dominion. To ascribe to him these traits of dominion, that is rule, and glory due to God alone. It's about to go there, but look how it further describes him in verse 5. To him who loves us. Stunning. Not just that he says grace and peace to you, but he says, who am I? I am the one who loves you. That should not be. That's the juxtaposition right here. He is the one who loves us. Church, He's the one who loves you. Not only does He know where you live and know your phone number, but when He calls you, He says, I love you. I am the Lord God Almighty who reigns from my throne in heaven over all of time. Before it existed, I was, and I love little old you born in rebellion against me. But I love you, and I have enacted, I have acted on that love. What does the verse continue to say? Who loves us and freed us. Freed us from our sin, it says, by His blood. He doesn't love you empty, emptily, he loves you effectively. He loves you and has freed you from slavery to sin. Slavery. This is His reaching down to redeem. To pull you out of a bondage to the thing that destroys you. Every single problem you face in all of the world and in all of your heart is due to your sin. And God has said, I'm going to set you free from that by my own initiative, in my own power, because I love you. 
at the cross, Christ shed His blood to deal with Christian you. Not just people. You. To deal with you and your sin. This is individual. Sometimes we, we, we lose the gospel in the generalities. Make it specific. It's about you. And us, but you. He loves you and died for you to set you free from your sins and bring you into communion with Him. Look where the verse goes in 6. To make us a kingdom and priests. Now earlier above, you might have servants in verse 1. Literally the word is slaves. We are slaves of His, but more than that, we are a kingdom and we are priests. Lest we misunderstand what slave means. It's not some menial, destructive power-mongering that He has over us. He freed us from slavery to sin and made us slaves to Himself. That is, made us royal sons, a kingdom. And priests, those who get to draw near into the presence of God and be before Him, serving Him and enjoying Him. What a marvelous thing. If it so happens, and maybe this is, this is a little bit true for me, maybe this is true for you, if it so happens that to say that God loves you strikes you as a little bit odd because you're not used to that language, it's a little bit odd for me. So you can get at what that word means, you can get around the emotional lovey-dovey feel of it, you can get at what it means by looking at what he does with it bringing you from your sin and bringing you into His presence to serve Him and enjoy Him, a priest to Him. This one, the Bible says, in His presence is fullness of joy. He has made that for you and can speak to you grace and peace. This sovereign Son is our loving liberator. He's reached down to redeem you. That's already happened. And there is more that is coming. That's where verse 7 takes us. Verse 7, in fact, uh, touching on a theme that's central to the whole book, of course. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Reference to Daniel chapter 7. So much of the imagery in this book is from the Old Testament. Daniel's a popular place for, for the writer to go. He is coming with the clouds, alluding to clouds of dust kicked up by chariot wheels. Back in Daniel's day when that was first written, the chariot was like the, the battle tank of the army. And so he's, he's a mighty warrior. He's the ruler of the kings on the earth coming in a tank on the attack to set up a kingdom and every eye will see him. At that point, we we leave Daniel 7 and move to Zechariah 12. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. In Zechariah 12, he's talking about the tribes of Israel, alluding to the crucifixion. Every tribe of Israel will see him. But here, 
Because it's no longer just about Israel. It's about all the nations. It's every tribe of the earth will see Him and will wail on account of Him. When He comes to set up His dominion, His kingdom, that is coming. Surely coming. He has already reached down to redeem you at the cross and He is surely coming. The day, the time is near. This book is setting us up to be expectant without trying to tie us to a a calendar. It's setting us up to be on our foot again, leaning and expectant. He's coming soon. And when He comes, every eye will see Him and there will be a great reckoning which calls us to the third point, a response. What are we to do with that? The third observation. So here's my third point. Blessed is the one who reads this to others as well as the one who hears it and heeds it. Blessed, that is fortunate. Blessed is the one who reads this to others as well as the one who hears it and heeds it. Obviously, I take this right out of verse 3. That's what verse 3 essentially says. And the bulk of the passage, 4 and following, is telling us about the nature of God, who He is as the reigning one, what He has done to save and will do to save. But that calls for a response that is actually written out for us in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads it, hears it, and keeps it. So we must make this known. We must proclaim it. The the reading in verse 3 is primarily about reading in a church setting. This letter would be received and it would be read in a church out loud and that tells us something about what churches are supposed to be about. Have you ever thought, why do we gather? Well, primarily the reason that we gather is not because we didn't have anything else to do. And it's also not because we are a group about setting up more structures and programs to meet human needs. And it's not because we like to sing. And it's not because we want to to gather together and affect social change and political agendas. We gather together to receive the Word of God, to dispense it, to hear it, and to do it. That's what a church is about. That's what a worship service is about. And so we preach the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, and hopefully on the other side of it, we hear the Word and do the Word. That's what's supposed to be happening. So he's primarily talking about a church, but we need to think a little bit more about this. To Think about verse 7 in light of this verse. In verse 7, there are, there are two impulses, I might say. They, they circle around the word wail. Maybe you might say there's two ways to wail. One, picked up in the rest of the book, there is a wailing of grief and frustration at pending doom. And this word comes up later in the book. As the nations see Christ coming, see Him pouring out destruction, and they wail in frustration over the destruction. 
There's that. But there's also there's another way to wail. And it's introduced to us by Zechariah 12 itself. Because if you go look at and read Zechariah 12, the wailing there is actually a positive thing. The wailing, the mourning of Zechariah 12 comes after God has poured out on the tribes the spirit of grace. And they look on him whom they pierced and they wail or they mourn and they are turned and saved. So another impulse is set up for running through this book about the nations hearing of this Christ who is coming and turning to him. So even as a little subset of people who are receiving this are hard-pressed by all of the masses of people, hard-pressed and beaten down, they proclaim, they read, if you will, the word of God out loud, and some hear it, and some mourn over it, and are turned, saved. So blessed, I say to the church here, blessed is the one who reads this out loud, not just here, but blessed is the one who reads this out loud out there. The people would hear it and would be turned. If God would so kindly pour out the spirit of grace, they would hear it and be saved. The mourning would be a mourning of repentance leading to great joy. Blessed is the one who reads this to others and the one who hears it and heeds it. That's the rest of verse 3. He is coming. The kingdom, the dominion of Christ is coming. So hear that and keep it. Which might seem odd because there isn't a command there. How do you heed? That's what keeping means, obeying. How do you obey a declaration? Now, true, it is setting us up for, as we'll see in the following weeks, the letters to all those churches, and there are plenty of commands in those, in those letters. So it's setting us up to hear and to obey those things. But even in this, as we're touching on the main themes of the book here, even in this, there's something to hear and to keep. How do you keep, how do you obey a declaration? Well, what would you do if I said, you know, there's a bank down here at the bottom of the hill in the little complex, a couple of restaurants, and there's a bank down there. And Monday morning, they're handing out free money to the first hundred people that show up. They open at nine. That's just a declaration. There's no command there. If you wanted free money, what might you do to heed that? Show up at 7.30. To get in line in time for when they open the doors and to hand out the free money, right? That, that's how you would heed such a statement. That's not a command, but you're hearing it and saying, I hear the implied offer, the promise in it. And if I want X, I should do Y. That's how you heed a statement. Well, what kind of statement do we have here? The Lord God Almighty reigns and loves you. 
and has in His love redeemed and will redeem you. How do we heed that? Trust Him. Hold tight to Him. Do everything in your power and invite other people to do everything in their power to to staple to your forehead the Lord God Almighty reigns so that when you walk out the door, you don't leave it behind, but carry it with you and see God reigns. God, I want to forget Him. God reigns over all of this. And He has already redeemed me and He will redeem me. You hold it. You believe it. And you don't throw it away and cast your hope on something else. So Christian, the offer here to you, to put it in the words of the Old Testament, is to cease striving and know that He is God and that He will be exalted in all of the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. Cease striving and trust Him. Hold to Him. Now, specifically doing what? Well, the following letters will elaborate on some of that. But a Christian and a church that sees these two points about the Lord reigning and the Lord loving, a Christian and a church that sees that and believes it will find a powerful weapon in in its hands. You'll find a powerful weapon in your hands against fear and against discouragement and against anxiety and for contentment and joy and hope. Can you imagine this? A church that does not strive, but rests. Can you imagine a church that does not deal with itself, with the outside world, from fear of trying to get it and make it happen with my own ability, but says, God, you are my redeemer, you are my defender, I hope in you. Can you imagine a church that doesn't fight with itself? He's nothing to fight about. He has you. It would be a church that would look like the weaned child of Psalm 131, sitting content in his mother's lap. Not concerned about things over his head, Just content, knowing I have a strong and almighty parent. In the psalm, it's a mother. Here, it's God the Father. Who has my whole world in his hands. It's like a weaned child. I just rest here. And David ends that psalm. O Israel, trust in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. O Israel, trust in the Lord, the God Almighty who reigns and who has acted to redeem you and will redeem you and in the meantime holds your life secure in His gracious hands. Trust Him. Let's pray as we move towards communion.
Lord, I thank you that you are God and that no one else is. That you, the God who has revealed yourself to us in, in this book we have from you, and nowhere else, no other books, this God is you, and this God reigns. I'm thankful for that. Not as thankful as I should be, but I'm thankful. And I pray that you would grow in each of us an appreciation of it, a remembering of it, a trusting of it. It Would make this more than just knowledge, help us to hear it and to heed it, to hold to it. Would you make your redeeming work in our lives big to us, a strong testimony about your, your protection and your care and your love. Help us with that, Lord. We are weak, we fail, we forget. Help us, I pray. And as we take the, the, the communion elements in our hand here now, Lord, as we turn to that, would you please do a particular work in, in individuals in this room, wherever people are, come and meet them. Do that for their good, to communicate to them your control over their lives, for their good in love. Bring that to pass, I pray, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.